Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're making your way there, this will be the the time to confess to you that today is one of my favorite holidays. Uh, It's filled with some of the most intriguing stories, have some of the darkest turns and suspenseful moments. It's a day we get to feast on some of the most delectable treats in all of history. And it's a day to remember the faithfulness of God to his word. I love October 31st because October 31st is Reformation Day. And some of you are thinking, I thought that was going towards Halloween. It's not. Halloween is not one of my favorite. It's Reformation Day, October 31st. And, and, and some of you may, may be there scratching your heads and thinking, what is Reformation Day? Some of you may be somewhat familiar with it. Some of you may be very familiar with it. But are you familiar with the Reformation? Maybe you've seen some of the paintings of the event. Here's, uh, we have a, uh, a picture here. Here's, here's Martin Luther. He's... Again, you've heard his name already in the service, but Martin Luther, here he is, uh, a painting of him uh, nailing the, what well, you may have uh, heard, the 95 theses to uh, the castle church door in Wittenberg, uh, Germany. And actually, I like this picture because uh, there's other stuff hanging on the door. A lot of times you just see him hanging his document on the door as if like he was doing something scandalous. But really, the church door was like the community bulletin board. And so, and so uh, you know, he, it wasn't like he was going to the church door as if to make some like demonstrative, demonstrative statement. But that's kind of where they, where they did a lot of different stuff. But October 31st, and as Justin Taylor describes it, It's to commemorate the day, quote, a 33-year-old theology uh, professor at Wittenberg, or Wittenberg University, walked over to the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed a paper of 95 theses to to the door, hoping to spark an academic discussion about their contents. Well, in God's providence and unbeknownst to anyone else that day, it would become a key event in igniting the Reformation. And indeed it was. In 50, the year was 1517, the day was October 31st, this German monk, uh, he's actually a Catholic uh, at this time, uh, formerly a monk, uh, named Martin Luther would ignite a reformation that would change the course of the Western world. It all happened with the rediscovery of the authority of the word of God. And that was the central issue of the Reformation. The central issue of the Reformation was, who has final authority? Was it God's word, or was it the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church? Martin Luther, many believed that it was the Pope who had final authority. It was the Pope, actually, who gave God's word its authority. That only what the Pope said and what came from the papacy uh, was, was authoritative in people's lives. Well, Martin Luther strongly disagreed. And he would argue that it was God's word alone that has authority over his people. He would even go so far to say that, uh, in summary, he would say that a schoolboy with the scripture in his hand is better fortified than the Pope. Strong words. And we'll have more on Martin Luther a little bit later. 
But with that in mind, I want us to turn to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is going to talk about the word of God in the lives of the Thessalonians. Where he begins in verse 13 of chapter 2, and he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now this is the second time in the book that we've encountered so far where Paul expresses his thankfulness to God for the Thessalonian church. And he's thanking God for how they received the word. How they embraced the word. And and more than how they embraced the word, how how the word embraced them in their hearts. And gave them strength to face even severe suffering. And then, that was kind of verse 13 and 14. In verse 15 and 16, the other side of this is that there were a group of people who rejected the word of God. It was the Jews. They rejected the word of God and they did everything they could to stop the gospel from being spread. And so this morning, we're going to look at two responses to the authority of the word of God and the results that come with it. Number one, two responses to the word of God and the results. Number one, receiving the word of God brings salvation and hope. Receiving the word of God brings salvation and hope. That's verses 13 and 14. Now, there are two words here that that Paul uses to talk about their reception of the word of God. And one is that word, received, and the other one is accepted. So he says, you received the word of God, which was you heard from us, you accepted it. Now, those words are basically synonymous, but there's a little bit of a difference between those two words. They're two different Greek words, anyways. The word received, maybe you could say, has a little bit more of an an outward focus and kind of deals with the content that was being received. The word accept is, is, we could say, maybe more of an inward thing, where the idea is that they embraced it, they, they welcomed it, they, they brought it in and, and grabbed onto it with all their heart. And so if we were going to distinguish the two, could say that receiving is kind of like the mental, like knowing. They, they knew the word of God. They brought, it, it, the word came into their minds. But the accepting of it was when they embraced the word with their heart. And believed it. So those are the two nuances of the word here. I wonder how many of you in here this morning would say that you've heard the word and you've even received it with your mind. But you've never embraced it with your heart. You haven't believed it. That's what I mean by that. You You know what the Bible says about Jesus. You know what the Bible says about the crucified and risen Savior. But you've never placed your faith in him. And it takes both to be saved. It takes, yes, knowing what the Bible says, but then it takes, it takes you placing your faith in it and believing it and saying, yes, I'm going to depend, I'm going I'm to stake my entire eternity, my whole life, everything I have on this truth that Jesus died for me. It's a welcoming it as the word of God. 
The message of the Bible will have no value to you unless you are united with it by faith. Uh, it reminded me of the parable Jesus uh, told of the guy who finds a treasure in a field. And that immediately when he found the treasure in the field, he went and sold everything he had so he had enough to buy that field. In his joy, he was joyful about buying this field. It was a picture of finding Christ and finding the gospel. But that treasure did that guy no good if he just simply knew there was a treasure there. He had to go and get it. And in order to get it, he had to sell everything he had. He had to say, listen, whatever I'm trusting in, whatever I'm loving right now more than that treasure, it's got to go. I need that treasure. And that's what, that's what happens when we come to the word of God. That's what happens when we're converted. We say, listen, I know, I know there's the treasure. It's Jesus Christ. But in order to have this Jesus and have this life and have eternal life and have my sins forgiven, I've got to let everything else go. I've got to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. But there's more to them just receiving it because there's, there's the flip side of the coin. Paul says you received the word and you accepted it, but notice what he says there. He says it was the word of God which you heard from us. The word that they received was communicated, communicated to them through Paul's teaching. It was the word of God. The literal phraseology in the original language reads, the word that you heard from us of God. Like the word that you heard from us of God. It was as if as they spoke the word, because people back then didn't have Bibles like we do now, and certainly the Gentiles wouldn't have had copies of Scripture laying around. And so as Paul, he spoke the word to them, and he, he taught the word, and he explained, and he reasoned with them. As they were hearing the very words of God. Christianity spread through the spoken word in the early centuries of Christianity from Acts 2 on. That's what Romans 10 says, isn't it? How, how are they going to hear without a preacher? How, how can they believe unless they hear? And who's, who's going to hear about the gospel unless somebody actually tells them about the gospel? That's what Paul was on a mission to do. Well, jumping back into Reformation days, I'm going to introduce you to another guy here. Because... Christianity spread through the spoken word, and and in the Reformation, it was very similar. Martin Martin Luther's teaching and the whole idea of the Reformation, of the authority of the word of God and being saved by placing their faith in Christ alone, it was spreading like wildfire. Now, he was in Germany, but it spread very quickly to other parts of Europe. Very quickly. And it spread to... United Kingdom, where there was an English scholar who would embrace the authority of the word of God just like Martin Luther did. And actually, before I give you his name, the the blessing of having a copy of the word of God in our hands is largely due to this man. His name was William Tyndale. And the history of our English Bible can be traced back to him. He was another reformer. He lived 1494 to 1536. And Tyndale was convinced that the common people needed the word of God. Because they didn't have the word. It was written in Latin. People couldn't really understand Latin. And and it was just, the, the word of God was basically this thing reserved for the scholars and for the Pope. And the only thing you got of the word of God is what they told you. And so Tyndale was convinced That every single person needed a copy of the word of God. But here was the problem. The king in the Roman Catholic Church refused to print a Bible in the common language for the people to have and read for themselves. And so at age 28, William Tyndale, 
This is actually, there's, this is something he would say to even a Catholic scholar who, who believed that the common people shouldn't have the word of God. He says this, he says, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall, now, shall know more of scripture than you do. And over the next several years, he would die at age 42 by being burned at the stake. Over the next several years, he translated the Greek New Testament and some of the Old Testament books into English, into the common language. And over the span of just a few years, he copied, printed, smuggled out over 18,000 copies of the Bible. He was driven by the conviction that people needed the word of God in order to know how to be saved, in order to know what God wants of them, in order to know about their sin and the sinless Savior that came to die for them. And at age 42, for advancing the doctrine of the Reformation, for illegally putting the copy of the scriptures into the common people's hands, he would be burned alive at age 42. That's what Paul was out to do. He was out to give people the true word of God. And he wasn't making copies and handing them out, but the Apostle Paul was, he knew that in order for people to be saved, they needed to hear the word of God. And they, and the Thessalonian church embraced the word of God, and they received it. And it says, this is, you received it like it really is, it really is the word of God. And it says, it's at work with you in, within you believers. This is what the word of God does. It doesn't just give us information, but because the word of God is a divine book, it's an, that also means it's an active book. And for some of you, Hebrews chapter 4 comes to mind, doesn't it? The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's piercing all the way to divide our soul and spirit, joins and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Here's what Isaiah 55, 10, 11, the choir sings, uh, sings a song that's based off this. I think they sing it just a few weeks ago. Where it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bring, uh, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And God's word was sent out and God, it's because God wants you to know him. So you know who he is and who you are in light of him and what you need to do to make sure you're saved and forgiven. It's the production of the word. It was at work within them. And we know it was at work within them because you remember from in, uh, earlier in chapter 1, we looked at a few weeks ago, it says that the, they received the word of God and it says they turned to God from idols. That's an activity of the word of God. It, it causes us to turn from idols. Is, is the word of God doing that for you? It gave them, we looked at the, remember the words, the faith, uh, the, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. It gave them godly character. Is God's word doing that for you? It did what no human message could possibly, to, possibly do. I'm convinced that the best thing a purely human message can do, even if it's got religious lingo in there, the best thing a human message can do is only create more idols in your life, if nothing, an idol out of yourself. But God's word is a divine message Unlike anything that has ever been spoken, everything, anything written you've ever heard. And the moment you accept God's message about Jesus Christ, 
It's the moment you're converted, the moment you're saved. Though it's a little bit hard for them, because we learn in verse 14 that the word of God, their receiving of the word of God, their embracing of the word of God gave them eternal life. Yes, it saved them from their sins, but it also gave them great hope. Because in verse 14, we learn, he says, for you brothers became imitators. There's that imitating word again that we saw in chapter 1. But this time it's you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, several hundred miles away. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They became imitators of those who suffered. The gospel was so at work in their lives that they were willing to suffer for it. We, re- we read that account when we opened up the series from Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, where they face abuse, verbal rejection, false accusations. And it says here they, they suffered just like the church in Judea. Uh, over in Palestine. It's like, so Paul is like saying, there's this universal fellowship of all churches who are per- persecuted in Jesus Christ. Now this might be a good point to stop and ask, what is persecution? Because we use that word a lot, we hear it a lot. What exactly is persecution? And J. Paul Nyquist defines it well in his book, Prepare. Where he says, persecution is the societal marginalization of believers with a view to eliminating their voice and influence. Persecution is the societal marginalization of believers with a view to eliminating their voice and influence. And that could take on many different forms. Of course, the extreme form of persecution being death, imprisonment. But any time a society, any time political leaders, any time there's a, there's, a, there's a concerted effort to marginalize the gospel and the Christian message to eliminate the voice of God's word and the influence of God's word, that's persecution. Now the difference between the Thessalonian church and the American church when it came to persecution isn't necessarily that they were Suffering more, though they were. But the difference between the Thessalonians and us in America is that they were prepared for it. Look at chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 3, verse uh, uh, beginning in, in verse 3, I guess. We can start there. He says, he says, I exhorted you that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Then notice what it says here about Paul. For when we were with you, we kept telling you, beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And so Paul is saying, listen, don't, don't be upset. You, you're facing it. We're facing it. We told you we were going to keep facing it. We told you to expect the exact same thing. And it was the gospel that gave them hope and caused them to endure. And their endurance and persecution was proof that the word of God was operative in them. Because here's the blessed hope about persecution. Coming from a pastor who has suffered very little for his faith. Preaching to a church that has suffered very little for their faith. In a nation that even with everything going on is suffering very little for their faith. Although it will be continually cranked up. The blessed hope about persecution is that persecution has never stopped the gospel. No church dies due to persecution. You might have to meet somewhere else. You might have to flee for your life. You might have to do something. But no church 
dies simply because of persecution. Churches die because of entitlement and arrogance and selfishness and self-exaltation. That's why churches die. Or immoral failure from a leader. And sin. That's why churches die. Hugh Latimer, and this will be the, the last guy, I know I'm piling on the names here, but this will be the last guy from the Reformation I introduced you to. Martin Luther, William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer. He was uh, another guy burned at the stake in 1555 for advancing the ideas of the Reformation in England. And so he was advancing, saying, listen, the word of God is our final authority. It's not the Pope. We get our message. We figure out how we're saved. We figure out how we live our lives from the word of God. And here are his dying words while he was burning, alive. And it was with a friend of his. And he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. So confident was he in the word of God, he burned alive for it, trusting that all the while that the candle of God's word, while he himself being a living candle, being burned alive, that it would spread And that the light of God's word and the light of the doctrine that are being taught in the Reformation would continue to spread. And it has spread. And it continues to spread to this very day. And it hasn't been put out. We're still singing a song from the Reformation. We just sang it this morning. With a mighty fortress is our God. The great motto of the Reformation, three Latin words... Post tenebras lux. Translation, after darkness, light. It was a time of darkness during the time of the Reformation because the common people didn't have access to the word of God. The authorities were abusing the word of God and the Latin language hid the word of God from the people being able to read it. But God used Martin Luther and a host of others to bring the word of God to the people. And once the authority of the word of God was established, the people were able to see past the phoniness of the Pope and the phoniness of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were able to see what God says about how to be saved, who Jesus is, and how to have your sins forgiven and have eternal life. The word of God began to shine in full force after those dark ages. The word of God is where salvation from sin and eternal hope is found. And that's what the Thessalonians found. When Paul spoke to them the word of God, they found eternal life and they found hope for this life and in the world for the world to come. And the word of God, it reveals to you the true state of your sinful heart. It tells you of the sinless Savior who died and rose again. It brings light to those who live in the darkness of sin, who feel lost, lonely, abandoned, and hopeless. The word of God is a lamp for our feet. It's a light for our path. And the question is, have you received the word of God? God's word is the story of redemption. It's the revelation of God and his gospel. 
hear the word gospel out. The gospel simply means good news. The good news that sinners can be forgiven, adopted into God's family, and granted eternal life. Have you accepted and embraced that message by faith? And if you have, Christians, when it comes to the word of God, I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to think on this question. Christians, do you see the word of God as a blessing to enjoy or a burden to endure? Receiving the word of God, embracing the word of God brings salvation. It brings hope. And once you've embraced the gospel, keep receiving, keep embracing the word of God every day, every day. So that's the example we get from the first couple verses. That's the first response. The first response is you receive the word of God, you believe it, you place your faith in Christ because, because that's what the word of God teaches. And then you have eternal life and you have hope. But there's another response to the word of God that we get in verses 15 and 16. And that's this. Rejecting the word brings wrath and judgment. Receiving the word of God, embracing the word of God, believing the word of God brings life, eternal life, salvation, and hope. But rejecting the word brings wrath and judgment. Now what Paul's going to do here in verses 15 and 16, he's going to launch into a very strong polemic against his own people. And he's going to be a little less politically correct than we may like to be in our day and age. And as he begins to just kind of go full force at, at his own people, the Jewish people, I want, before we jump on that, I want to remind you of his heart and of his love for, for the people, for the Jewish people. We're in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Paul says these words. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were sent to hell and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to my flesh that's the heart I wish Paul is about to speak he loved his Jewish kinsmen but he also realized that they were rejecting the word of God and Paul shows no partiality As a matter of fact, don't don't forget about the hard words he had for the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. So Paul is uh, all about equality. Everybody gets the same message of politically not correct judgment speech. And so we all get it as well. And just to say he is not promoting anti-Semitism, but he's showing us how the Jews continue to reject the word of God and reject the gospel. And he lists five things here. Number one, they killed Jesus. And he says not even they killed Jesus, they killed the Lord Jesus. By killing Jesus, they killed the Lord. So they were charged by Paul with the greatest crime ever to be committed by mankind. They killed the exalted God who had come to them in human flesh. And by the way, who came to them in human flesh to save his people from their sins. Now, little did they know that by killing him and crucifying him, they were fulfilling the plan of God, but the the heart of rejection that was behind it. The cross was the place where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that all who believe in him can be forgiven. But the Jews killed him. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought this was a Roman execution. And it was. 
The Romans carried out the crucifixion, but the Jews were held responsible. This is what is said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Okay, nothing was going to change here. It's the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, you crucified. He's talking to his Jewish brothers. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You may have used the Romans to do it, but you killed Jesus. You killed the Lord. Not only did they kill Jesus, they killed the prophets. And a number of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, they often say, you guys are killing the prophets. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, it's where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. They were known for killing prophets. And of course, killing the prophets would eventually culminate in killing Christ. They killed Jesus, they killed the prophets. Uh, Notice here, they also drove out Paul and the missionaries. Uh, the idea that they were persecuted out, they were, they were driven out. And it's like every other chapter, once you, once you get introduced to Paul in the book of Acts, it's like every other chapter, Paul is getting chased out of town. And this is what is experienced for many missionaries all over the country today and will always be experienced until the Lord returns. People trying to drive Christianity out. And even now in, in subtle ways and even not so subtle ways, In our world today, in America today, Christianity is being driven out. It says they displease God. There's the fourth one. They kill Jesus. They kill the prophets. They drive out missionaries. They displease God. They just continually do what brings divine displeasure. And I want you to notice uh, the, the last one here. It says, they and they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. They're hostile to everybody. And there might be some cultural things going on here where the Jews just kind of, you know, they were the God's chosen people. And, you know, ethnically speaking, they just wanted to keep everybody else on the outside. But Paul is telling us a very specific reason how they oppose all mankind. They oppose all mankind or they're hostile to all men in that they want to prevent people from hearing the gospel to be saved. The Jews were upset because Paul... A Jew was teaching, based on Jewish teaching in the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Christ. And that in order that you could be saved by placing your faith in this crucified Jesus. The Jews didn't like that. Because Paul offered salvation without requiring people to become a Jew. And Paul offered salvation without requiring people to follow these religious rules and all of the extremes of the law. And all these legalistic, man-made rituals and rules. See, the Jews had turned the Old Testament grace of God into this system of works, where if you did these things and you were you were a Jew and you got circumcised and you kept the law and you and you and even the extreme interpretations of the law, then you were okay with God. And Paul challenged this thinking. That's what he says in Galatians chapter two, verse sixteen, where he says. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by, no, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul sees two ways of being justified and having a right standing before God. Number one, 
And in, or, in order to get to heaven, you have to be justified before God. Number one is by works, and the other is by Christ. The problem is, God says very clearly here that works of the law won't justify you. So there's really only one way to get to heaven. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Back to Martin Luther. He was fighting against this very same thing. Actually, I, as, I, as I compare Paul and Luther together, it almost seems like they were doing the same thing. Martin Luther saw this works-based system that said, if you do these works, you do these things, you can be saved. And Paul saw this works-based system. If you do these things, you do these works, you can be saved. And they both just took it head on. Now, you heard me mention, and you saw the picture at the beginning of the 95 theses that Martin Luther posted to the castle church door. Now, why was that such a big deal? And why, did, why would whatever he wrote there eventually lead to people being, he was, I mean, he was chased out of town, and he had to, he had to kind of run and hide on a couple different occasions, so he was actually never, never martyred, but, but so many others were. Why is that? Well, it's because Martin Luther came to understand that the Bible, God's final authority, taught on how a person could be saved. And he knew that he, he was a Roman Catholic himself. And so being part of the Roman Catholic Church, he knew that he, if, if he's looking at God's word and he's saying, listen, God's word says we're, we're saved and we're justified by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then this isn't what the Pope is teaching. And so Martin Luther knew he had to take this thing head on. And if you want to get more, sp- to get more specific on what was going on, during this time, the Roman Catholic Church needed money to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so what the Pope decided to do to raise money to build this amazing basilica is that he was going to sell what was called indulgences. And so he sent people, uh, you know, salesmen basically, all around to, to sell indulgences. I'll explain what those are here in a minute. But the most famous salesman for the Pope was a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. And so he would go around selling these, what the Pope called, plenary indulgences. And so the message was that if you wanted to have all your sins forgiven, and you wanted to have eternal life, and you wanted to make sure that you skipped purgatory and went straight to heaven, you had to purchase an indulgence slip. And again, remember, the money for the indulgences would go to the Pope where he could pay for building a nice big building. And so he went around saying that in order to be, have your sins forgiven, this is God's way to have your sins forgiven, give money to the Pope and give it to the Roman Catholic Church. And even more than that, they even said you had the opportunity to buy your dead relative who's burning in purgatory. If you bought an indulgence slip, they would get out. And so here's, here's what Tetzel himself says. He would go around and here's what he would tell the people. He'd enter a town and then he'd say, listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. He even had a famous jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Martin Luther wasn't a big fan of that. When he came to realize what was going on, when he came to realize that God's word alone had the authority to say how you're saved. So this guy was going to come through town and he said, okay, it's time to have a real discussion about this. 
And so he posted these 95 theses challenging the sale of indulgences, denying the power of the Pope, and questioning their motive behind everything. Here's what number 32 says of the 95. Where he very clearly says, says, Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Pope didn't like that. And Luther, like Paul, was concerned for the gospel. And so Paul is going head on with the Jews and saying, you've killed the Lord Jesus, you've killed the prophets, you drive out people, you oppose all mankind by keeping them from hearing the gospel so that they can be saved. And that's exactly what Martin Luther was doing. People needed to know the true way to be saved. That no one is justified before God because of their works. They are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, all for the glory of God alone. And Paul says, because of all this, you're, you're, you've, just, you've heaped up all your sins to the limit. Genesis 15, 16, God talks about this with the Amorites. He says the sin of the Amorites aren't yet fulfilled, which is why the people had to stay in Egypt for a while. like all their their sin just came to the top and wrath some way some way wrath was upon them then but it certainly was coming in the future as well unless we think that this sort of wrath and judgment is only for those people who treat christians like this paul will say in second thessalonians chapter one he says god is going to reveal from heaven his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's on whom the wrath of God comes. So it's not just those who kill the Lord Jesus, kill the prophets, oppose Christianity, hate Christianity, try to drive Christianity out. God's wrath comes on all those who disobey the gospel. And the, to obey the gospel means to call the gospel. God says God requires everyone everywhere to be saved and to believe in the gospel. And to not embrace the gospel is to disobey the gospel and to remain under God's wrath. So when you die, will God say to you, you did your life your way, you, but you never received my word. You piled up your sins on yourself, on earth, and you're going to experience my wrath for all eternity. Or will he say, you believe the gospel. And by so doing, you dump the pile of your sins at the foot of the cross where Jesus was crucified. And so come on in. Your sins are forgiven. They're taken care of. You've got no more sins to worry about. It's Reformation Day. And Martin Luther was one of the main guys who led the way of the Reformation. Or did he? Here's what he says about it. He says, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Let's pray. Lord, at the end of all this, the end of our lives, the end of our days, the end of our ministries, 
May we be able to say like Luther, that we got to see your word, that we embraced it, we received it, it worked in us, it worked through us. And Lord, maybe I would just change my prayer a little bit and ask, ask you, God, to do a mighty work with your word at Calvary Baptist Church and in Mount Pleasant. So that, Lord, at the end of all things, it's not about a pastor, not about cool strategies or cool this or cool that. But by the end of all things, we could all say we did nothing, but the word did it all. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll have the guys who are going to help serve communion uh, come forward. And as they make their way up this morning, just want to mention to you that, uh, that as we take communion, this is, this is a symbol, this is a sign, this isn't, this isn't salvation. Jesus asked us to remember him uh, after he left by doing this in baptism. And we remember the Lord Jesus by two different elements. Again, nothing super, there's nothing magical, there's nothing uh, uh, spiritual in the sense that it would grant you some sort of favor with God. But it is a means of grace where we get to remember what the Lord Jesus did for us. The bread represents, it was unleavened bread. It was, it was kind of the idea of sinlessness and spotlessness, this, this perfect life that Jesus lived. And the juice represents the blood that was spilled. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so if you're in here this morning and you're, you're a follower of Jesus and you have embraced the gospel, then you're welcome to partake with us. If you've never embraced the gospel and you're not a Christian, we just ask that you let it go by. This isn't for you. And we're not going to call you out or embarrass you or anything like that. We just ask that you just simply let it go by as uh, those believers in Jesus Christ take this time to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And just as a... Uh, a heads up as well, there's going to be two cups there. It's going to have the juice and the cracker both on the same stack. So be sure you're, you're, grabbing, you're grabbing both in the stack. And then at the end, we'll, we'll take them all together uh, when, uh, when the, the guys come back after, after serving. Let's pray, and then we'll pass out the elements. Father, just uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that uh, we all come to you with, uh, oh, Lord, there's a huge list of sins that we could, we could, we could map out over this past week and and uh, Lord, many in here, perhaps it's, it's their sin and their own brokenness and weaknesses, uh, their own hurt conscience is just driving them to despair. I pray that this time of remembrance of the Lord Jesus, of, of when you, Lord Jesus, came to die for our sins, that you paid it all. You paid it all. Um, and, and when we survey the wondrous cross, Lord, what, what can we do but be thankful? And so bless now this time as a family, as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.